0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory.
1: G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. The Vietnamese government has just unveiled new laws regarding animal welfare standards. Now what does this mean for Australia's live cattle trade? You'll find out soon. You'll also today find out why cotton prices have taken a bit of a dive in recent days. And tell me, have you ever eaten an orange sugar or a speckled emperor pearl? Do do you know what I'm talking about? These are niche varieties of melon. And today on the Country Hour, you'll meet the farmer growing them, mostly for export to Japan.
2: Some of those honeydew types these days have white internal flesh and some have pink internal flesh and some have orange and some have green. So there's a great myriad of those things, but the the key with them all is flavour.
1: Yummy. This is all coming up on today's program. Let's get into it. We're broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC. And g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast Now, this week at Parliament House in Canberra, the politicians passed legislation to allow carbon dioxide to be imported and exported across Australia's international borders. Now, who would want to do this? Well, as mentioned yesterday, the sea dumping bill is a big win for Santos as it paves the way for its multi-billion dollar Barossa gas project as well as its plans to build a massive carbon capture and storage project. But it's not just Santos. There's at least three other companies that have also registered interest in taking CO2 from outside of Australia. And one of those companies is Deep Sea Store, which has a proposal to ship liquid carbon dioxide from businesses in Australia and also in Asia and then store it under the sea floor off the northwest coast of Australia. The managing director is Dayan Cha. He spoke to Dan Fitzgerald about the company's plan.
3: Our project covers the full value chain of the CCS. Uh, we talk with large-scale CO2 emitters, both uh, domestically in Australia uh, as well as um, in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, we then offtake CO2 from them, liquefy it uh, to put it on a ship. And the ship uh, coming from those emitter locations are transported to uh, an offshore location where the injection site is. And what we do is we have what's called a floating storage injection hub. We call it the FSI hub. All the CO2 that gets transported by ship from the emitter Uh, collects at the central hub that's floating offshore, uh, which is uh, situated right above the uh, injection site. Uh, And from that floater hub, uh, we inject CO2 into uh, a structure that allows for permanent storage.
4: And what sort of businesses uh, would want to sell their CO2 to you?
3: So anyone from um, steel manufacturers, cement manufacturers, uh, ammonia, fertilizer manufacturers um so power gen generators uh those are the people we um tend to target because the oil and gas companies have fields that they need to reduce their own emissions so we actually go out to the non-oil and gas um uh production companies uh, to help them because they, you know, they, they need as much help to reduce their CO2 emissions as um, uh, anybody else. So how
4: will your company make money by taking other people's uh, greenhouse gas pollution?
3: So each of these CO2 emitters um, will ongoingly have various options of decarbonisation. Uh, obviously, those come at a cost. So, we offer a CO2 offtake arrangement, um, such that if our offtake price uh, is economically more efficient for those parties, then um, they will take it. If it's not, then they won't. Uh, The big benefit that we provide is that um, CCS allows for massive CO2 emission reduction. It's almost a one-stop shop for these um, emitters. Uh, where, um, if they have to pursue their own CO2 emission reductions through other means, it needs to come via a combination of various, um, efforts. And so it's, it doesn't provide that one stop shop type of solution. So I guess it's a balance of, um, the economic viability and the sheer mass of, um, CO2 emission reduction that one solution can offer for the, uh, CO2 emitters, which you know some may f- uh, find that extremely favourable, others may not and um, I think there's an economic um, decision to be made there.
4: And will you be able to generate Australian carbon credits from taking CO2 from other companies?
3: So whether it's a domestic or um, overseas activity, we don't uh, foresee us getting accused because since the change of the safety mechanism reform, um, all safety mechanism facilities um, or reduction CO two emission reduction activities contribute to that um, will be um, allocated safety mechanism credits. Uh, and from a CCS project developer perspective. There needs to be a critical mass of CO2 that we stake because CCS is a very large infrastructure project. So we can't go for very small, uh, CO2, uh, emission. Uh, so my primary, I guess, um, CO2 supplier, uh, candidates, uh, are all safety mechanism facilities which emit, you know, at least 100,000 tons per annum. Uh, and so it's those people we target, and when we offer CCS to them, uh, for them the C- CO two emission reduction is now um, obligatory and not voluntary, and, and hence um, you know, that activity that won't qualify as an accuse, But we get um, well, the emitter by engaging you know, thus have access to um, safety mechanism. Yes,
4: so the emitter will pay you to reduce their own emissions. There's been plenty of critics about carbon capture and storage. Uh, The world's largest CCS project at Chevron's Gorgon Field in Western Australia. Only last week it said it's only stored about a third of its target over the last seven Mm -hmm. years. There's Mm -hmm. been plenty of issues with a few other CCS projects. Why do you think yours will be successful?
3: So Chevron's um, CCS project... I I, I don't think people fully realize that that was a very large-scale R&D project. Um, Ultimately, where Chevron is having um, problems is not on the CCS side, but when they inject CO2, um, they have to um, pressure manage the um, sink that they're um, pushing in CO2 into. So they have to draw out water to kind of maintain pressure. And it's the handling of the water uh and uh it's that side that's um troubling uh, chevron to uh, meet their uh, design capacity so it's actually not the CCS that's the issue it's the water management um side that's troubling CCS so i think people tend to kind of blank um make blanket statement about um CCS not working because chevron's project is not working chevron has their own specific problem well, um, which is a project specific problem. It's not a CCS technology problem. Uh, so uh, I guess that needs to be, there needs to be a, a clear uh, distinction. And I guess, you know, I mean, if you look into, for example, the Global CCS Institute, um, recent publications, the, the status of CCS in 2023, there's 41 operational facilities out there. And the injection capacity is 49 million ton per annum operational. So, you know, there's, um, lots of other, um, CCS project benchmarks uh, globally, uh, that hopefully help calibrate people's view on CCS because, you know, Australia is really the only country where the rhetoric, uh, for CCS is, um, uh, quite negative, uh, when compared to all other jurisdictions.
1: That is Dayan Cha, who is the Managing Director of Deep Sea Store. He was speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. He joins me in the studio this afternoon. Dan, the Territory Government, on another topic, has signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the famous Korean manufacturing company Samsung. And this is an MOU at looking to build a renewable energy project in the Territory. What's the story? Uh, Details are a
4: little bit thin on the ground, Matt, but Samsung says it wants to investigate the potential to build some sort of renewable energy project in the Northern Territory and it signed this MOU and created a working group with the Northern Territory Government to spend the next two years looking at exactly what sort of renewable energy project that might be. Um, It'll take a look at where it could happen, the size and whether or not it's wind or solar or some other renewables. Um, Middle Arm will be investigated as as part of it, whether it could work there. Uh, Here's a bit of the Chief Minister, Natasha Files, speaking about what could come from this MOU.
0: So this is a project that will be 100% renewable energy. Uh, So creating that energy is the project, and then whether that energy is exported or whether it's utilised for a project further downstream in the Northern Territory is what this MOU um, will develop. So the location of the green energy, the type of the green energy, um, solar, potentially wind. Um, So this is a formal relationship with Samsung C&T. So we're very excited at that project uh, to work collaboratively um, over the next period of time to see uh, this project come to fruition.
4: Chief Minister Natasha Files speaking at a press event earlier today. So this renewable energy is likely not going to go into the grid and be used by regular customers in the Territory. It's likely going to be used by Samsung in some sort of manufacturing facility or by other companies looking to decarbonise their Mm. businesses. the Samsung president, Mr. Oh, he was also at this press conference this morning. Here's what he said about why his company has chosen the Northern Territory.
3: So we working globally, so not only in Australia. So we've been looking for the place that we can make ourselves, you know, using renewable energy to produce any kind of manufacturing. We're looking for the quality of, you know, location, producing renewable energies. It can be solar, it can be wind, and it can be any other type of clean energy too. And also we're looking for the location, stretching location, between Australia and other parts of the world. So Darwin is very much fit pit for the location. That's how we start to talk to it. We'll continuously discuss with other parts of the world too. But this is a very important project we start with.
4: Mr. O, he is president of Samsung C&T, speaking there about this memorandum of understanding and working with the NT government on some sort of renewable energy project. Still
1: a long way to go, it would seem. Thank you, Dan. G'day, my name's Trevor Derling. I work for Power & Water, and you're listening to The Country Hour.
4: It is 17 to 1.
1: Here on the Country Hour, we're receiving reports that there's a large dust storm to the south of Alice Springs. Lots of wind, lots of dust, lots of soot from those fires. Um, If you're in that region, what's it looking like at your place? 0487 is the text here at the Country Hour. Now... A couple of weeks back, the cotton price in Australia was hovering around $700 a bale. It's since dropped to more like $630, $640 a bale. So what caused that drop? I will tell you next. After this song by Chris Stapleton.
5: I've been sitting here all morning I was sitting here all
2: night. There's a Bible in my left hand
1: and a pistol in my right. Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the country hour. Got a rainfall report here from Dundee Beach. Someone saying they've got 25 millimetres in the gauge, which is good. And Rod says the ash storm went through Alice about an hour ago. Can't see another one yet. The wind wasn't too strong, even a little cooling, says Rod on 0487991057. Hey, cotton prices, they've fallen fairly sharply in the last week following a report by the International Cotton Advisory Committee which says global reserves are set to reach their highest level in history. Now, to put that in simple terms basically means there's a lot of cotton sitting in warehouses around the world, especially in China. This report also says that cotton production's on track to increase next year, but consumption is set to decrease. To learn more about the report's impact on the market and on prices, I had a chat to Cotton Australia's Chief Executive, Adam Kaye.
6: Yeah, well, look, the reports told the market that, um, the, the stocks of cotton in the world are uh, at the highest level that it's been for, a, for a long time. And that's starting to, um, impact the, the prices that are, um, you know, offered back to growers. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it, it is a concern to see, uh, you know, so much cotton out there in the world. It also means that consumption has uh, dropped back a bit. So, you yeah, know, production is up there, but consumption has fallen. And, um, and that means these stocks are rising.
1: And so next year I've got it more than 23 million tonnes in global cotton stocks. That seems like a lot of cotton just sitting around.
6: It it is. And, and look, we've seen this um, happen many times before. And, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, things sort of sort themselves out, you know, the consumption improves, and uh, and some of that cotton too is often um, you know, low quality and uh, and has issues. I think that's the the beauty of the Australian cotton. Yeah, you know, we sell everything we produce every year, and we've got this really high quality that is in demand. But you know, we are at the at the um, whims of the world sort of supply and demand. So you know, overall the the price has fallen. I think the other thing that's you know impacting the um, uh, the price for the Australian crop is just uh, the strengthening US dollar, and you know for every uh, every cent the um, you know the Aussie dollar goes up against the US, that's uh, wiping six or seven dollars uh, you know off the uh, off a, the cash price you know that, that we're receiving. So uh, you know, that's starting to have an, an impact as well.
1: In terms of Aussie dollars per bale, what has the price done in the last few weeks? <laughs>
6: Well, look, we were sitting up around 700, which is, you know, historically a very good price. And, uh, you know, we're seeing it back at the sort of 640s, uh, cash price for, for, you know, the crop that's in the ground at the moment. So, you know, I would suspect though that a, a good proportion of the, um, the crop that's in the ground now has been sold at, you know, those higher prices, you know, 10 or 20% would have been sold at those higher prices and, and, uh, and things would be going a bit quieter now, but, uh, yeah, it certainly, um, you know, has been historically high and uh, it's come back. But I think, again, if you look historically, you know, prices over $600 are, are very good and uh, I think everyone's just balancing that off with the uh, increase in input costs that we've, we've seen, you know, input costs, just like our, our cost of living, the input costs for, um, for producing crops has, uh, has gone up a lot.
1: And just going back to this report and how it talks about consumption decreasing next year what's your take on why that's happening
6: well I think it's uh, it's around the global economy and um, you know the, the cost of living and you know when you start looking at it the clothing is a discretionary item and uh, you know food and uh, and like doesn't suffer as much but discretionary items like clothing do suffer and um, I think it's just a you know an indicator of the, the world economic situation.
1: China is clearly sitting on a lot of cotton at the moment. What is the latest on Australia's cotton trade with China?
6: Yeah, look, we've had the soft bans on Australian cotton since um, October 2020, and we're starting to see that there is some cotton getting through. There are some... uh, People, you know, uh, exporting cotton to China, and it seems to be getting through. And uh, and so China does seem to be sort of loosening that soft ban. You know, obviously there's no announcements or anything like that, but there does seem to be a little bit of cotton going in there. But but that said, you know, we've you know the Australian cotton shippers and and uh, the industry have been working really hard to develop other markets, and we've we've really seen um, you know great increases in the amount of cotton we've been sending to the v- Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, India, Turkey. So, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a good thing to diversify our market because, you know, we were sending 70% of the crop to, to China and very reliant on it and on China. And so, you know, the fact that we've developed, you know, and expanded these other markets is a, is a good thing for the industry overall.
1: That's Adam Kay from Cotton Australia, who says the nation's on track to produce around 4 million bales next season, which is down on the previous year, but historically that is high. That's a lot of cotton. Here in the Northern Territory, pending on rainfall, there'll be some properties in the next few weeks who will start planting doing their wet season planting, so it's that time of the year. And if you've driven past the cotton gin there at Tawu Station just north of Catherine, you would have noticed the module starting to build up there at the gin. The Country Hour will be doing a special broadcast from the Tawu gin in the coming weeks, so stay tuned for that. That'll be huge. Now, the Vietnamese government has this week unveiled new animal welfare standards at a beef conference being held in Hanoi. These new rules are in line with Australia's Exporter Supply Chain Assurance System, SCAS, meaning local Vietnamese cattle will now get the same protections as the cattle that get imported from Australia. Uh, to learn more about these rules and what it potentially means for the live export trade, I had a chat to Alex Mark Harvey-Sutton, who's over in Hanoi.
5: Well, basically, this has been an effort from industry uh, for a number of years now. A uh, memorandum of understanding was uh, first signed between the Australian government and the Vietnamese government back in 2019, Uh, And since then, uh, significant work has gone into uh, basically having new standards enshrined in the Vietnamese law. Uh, And what that means is uh, basically Australian animal welfare standards, uh, particularly for live export, uh, are now law in Vietnam. And it's an extraordinary effort when you think about it, uh, because basically this is uh, a shining example of what. Our industry does uh, in terms of improving animal welfare in markets. They had not had standards before. uh, And in partnership, uh, Vietnam has worked very closely with us to adopt our standards. So it's a a terrific story, Matt.
1: Right. So what sort of protections does this give animals in Vietnam?
5: Well, essentially uh, for our industry, uh, it would capture SCAS standards. Um, It it is voluntary initially, but that's not uh, uncommon. Uh, In Vietnam, it's often how they introduce their laws and standards initially. Uh, And over the next couple of years, there'll be work to actually make them uh, mandatory. Uh, But what it does do is make sure that things around slaughter, transport, animal handling uh, are all to a standard, uh, which, of course, we uphold uh, in our dealings with the industry and uh, via SCAS. Uh, But now that's the standard that local cattle will have applied to them as well. Uh, and it's across the board uh, in Vietnam. So it's very, very good, Matt.
1: Right. So at the moment, if an animal gets exported from Australia to Vietnam and it's not treated kindly, even at the, at the back end in the slaughter process, it's the Australian exporter who gets punished for that, this new law would see uh, ramifications for the importer as well?
5: Oh Well, it wouldn't diminish the exporter's responsibility. They still maintain their SCAS responsibilities. Uh, and so that's that, that's fundamental uh, to our whole trade. Yeah. Uh, but what these new laws will do is uh, basically it, it, there won't be a differentiation between an Australian animal or a local animal. Uh, there will be expectations within Vietnam that all animals are treated humanely. Uh, so what it does do is actually uh, broaden uh, the application of Australian animal welfare standards effectively mm. Uh, so, which is excellent. So, you know, the, the standards, they they have a real desire to grow uh, and to increase their welfare standards. And uh, I just think it's tremendous. We've had the opportunity to play an integral role in it. Uh, and in the context of discussions we're having around the broader industry and, uh, you know, the, the, the battle we're having to uh, prevent the live sheep phase out, I think this uh, signing of the, or, or the enshrinement of these laws in Vietnam It's just an absolute example of why we cannot vacate these markets. Uh, We do play an active role in improving animal welfare there. And uh, here in Vietnam, they've actually enshrined it in law. So it's quite extraordinary, Matt, and it's something we do in all our markets right across the world.
1: Australia's live cattle trade into Vietnam this year has been slow. What's your take on how 2024 is looking?
5: I think there's a huge opportunity. I think we'll see an uptick in volumes. It's difficult to... um, predict exactly, of course, Uh, but I think if you look at the demand, uh, the current cattle prices in Australia, it's a very price-sensitive market, Vietnam, and when cattle prices were high, we saw that uh, demand or uh, the import of Australian cattle reduced quite significantly, but I think the settings are right to see it pick up again, and they've got a real desire to uh, not only Uh, enhance their food security but to actually uh, develop uh, their cattle production system Uh, it's very important uh, for Vietnam to have that growth around their cattle sector and it's a very unique market amongst our uh, uh, live cattle markets because uh, a lot of the uh, meat from our cattle that get exported actually go into the food service and the tourism trade so uh, it's a very vibrant market and there's a lot happening and uh, I think uh, I think twenty twenty four could be a very positive year Matt.
1: We spoke to analyst Simon Quilty this week, and one of his comments about Vietnam was that the grade trade with China had reopened this year, and he felt that Vietnam was ready to absorb a lot more buffalo meat from India but also a lot more live cattle from Australia. Does that match up with what you've seen and heard while in Hanoi?
5: It does, and, and Vietnam's a fascinating place in the sense that there's a, there's a centuries-old um, cattle trade across the broader Indochina region. So there are lots of cattle here and lots of cattle trading that takes place uh, anyway. But what Simon's trying to say there is if if something changes uh, to shift the dynamic of the market, an opportunity opens up. So I think that could be a very real possibility. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I think that opening of the uh, trade with China again post-COVID, I think that could see the settings line up, absolutely.
1: That's Mark Harvey Sutton, who's the Chief Executive of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. He's in Hanoi at the moment at that beef conference where the Vietnamese government has unveiled these new animal welfare standards. Since 2014, Vietnam's consistently been Northern Australia's second biggest customer for live cattle after Indonesia. In 2015, it bought a bit over 360,000 head, which is significant. 2024, few people now have told the Country Hour that 2024 is shaping up to be a big one for Vietnam. So we'll wait and see. We've got to go to the newsroom because it is one o'clock. I'll see you back here in five minutes for a chat with the Weather Bureau. Good
7: day. my name's Han. I'm a tropical fruit farmer out of Darwin. I am always too busy to listen to the Country Hour at lunchtime. So instead, I'll always listen to it after hours on the podcast.
1: Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Now, when it comes to eating melons, I bet we've got a bunch of people listening this afternoon who have only tried a watermelon, a rock melon, and maybe a honeydew. But when it comes to melons, there's a whole world of colours and flavours out there
2: some of those honeydew types these days have white internal flesh and some have pink internal flesh and some have orange and some have green so there's a great myriad of those things but the the key with them all is flavor
1: yeah before 1 you're going to meet this farmer who's growing a bunch of niche melon varieties and most of them are getting exported to japan Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. Uh, Beck, let's start in Central Australia. We've had reports from a few people of of a dust-slash-ash storm that went through Alice Springs at about 11 o'clock this morning. What's happening out there? Yeah, that's right.
8: Um, Quite a strong gust front uh, moved through Alice. It was about quarter past 11, and we uh, we registered a 98-kilometre-per-hour gust out of that um, as it as it moved through. So, Whoa. yeah, quite a significant severe gust there.
1: No wonder there was ash in the sky as well. That would have just picked up a lot of that uh, burnt country and thrown it in the air.
8: Yeah, that's right. So I was just lifted up... Um, yeah, a bit of a dust storm, a conceit on satellite um, extending uh, oh, through to about Tea Tree area um, as well. So, um, yeah, quite extensive there.
1: I've just got a note from Bushfires NT, which I'll share with our audience now. It says, Bushfires NT aircraft have all been grounded with the forecast of a sandstorm which will impact fire grounds at Undulia Station and Amberlindam Station. It says it's coming from the southwest and is expected to bring wind gusts of up to ninety five kilometers an hour. Air crew have landed safely and have reported the storm is large and goes as far south as they can see. Ground crews have been advised to seek shelter. Uh, you say it's sort of near Tea Tree at the moment. How far north are you expecting this surge to last?
8: Yeah, it's hard to say. It probably will uh, lose some of its strength as it progresses. Um, so, yeah, it might move into the, the Barclay district possibly. But, yeah, certainly that area where we do have those fire grounds at the moment is um, expected to, to impact that area um, quite shortly.
1: Mm. Is there um, any rain forecast for Central Australia in the next few days?
8: Yeah, it certainly is. Um, we've Seeing some storms at the moment um, across the Lhasa district Uh, that have progressed um, from last night right through this morning as well. Um, So yeah, expecting there'd probably be a bit of rainfall there. Uh, Looks like uh, pretty close to Yulara and Uluru at the moment. Um, So that's the the most active area expected today, but um, it could also extend, further east across the Simpson District and up through the the Tanami as well where we're starting to see some um, significant cloud development as well.
1: Okay, so in the course of the next few days, potentially how many millimetres could fall in some of these spots?
8: Yeah, it's probably going to um, be increasing um, potential rainfall over the next few days. Um, So we could see uh, um, probably... 10 to 20 millimetres falling daily Um, over the next few days. It's possible in some of those areas, particularly Friday, Saturday, we could see some heavier falls um, out of thunderstorms there. Um, I should also mention that for the next few days, so through until the weekend, uh, we do have a risk of severe thunderstorms uh, across the southern areas. So um, yeah, more damaging wind gusts are possible. Um, as well as the risk of some heavier rainfall and even some hail potentially on Friday and Saturday.
1: Yeah. What's the current temperature in Alice Springs out of interest? Because I know the, the forecast was for a top of 41 today, but with that um, change coming through, has that taken the edge off things?
8: Yeah, it did. It got to 40 degrees at uh, just before 11 o'clock this morning, but yeah. um, with that southeasterly that's come in, um, well, yeah, it initially was a, um, more of a southwesterly, but uh, now turned a bit more southeasterly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's dropped down to 36, so it <laughs> has <what laughs> a, a bit of a cooling effect.
1: Slight cooling effect. Uh, Slightly, let's talk about yeah. the top end. Look <laughs> at some of these rainfall figures up to 9 o'clock. Kangaroo Flats on 40 millimetres in the gauge. Adelaide River Station, 36. Tipperary Cattle Station, 48 in the gauge. They might be planting cotton... Sooner than they think. Um, Theona Station, 21 millimetres in the gauge. Haywood Creek, 45. Point Stewart, 45. Beswick Bridge, 15. Groot Islands had 10. So a bit of rain around there, and there's a bit more on the radar as well. What's the sort of this evening and tomorrow shaping up to be rainfall-wise, Beck?
8: Yeah, that's right. Um, So, yeah, expecting a bit more rainfall today Um, might get some similar totals possibly uh, but we are on a downward trend uh, in terms of um, the showers and storms over the next few days so expecting that to contract to probably the western daily district over the coming days uh, with some dry air pushing in from the east Um, so it's probably going to be making uh, things a little bit more isolated.
1: Anything else we need to be aware of?
8: I think that's the main thing, um, yeah, particularly the, the risk of severe storms in, in the south is uh, the most significant thing, I think, at the moment.
1: Beauty. And out of interest, have you eaten a melon other than watermelon, rock melon, honeydew?
8: No, I don't believe no, I have.
1: You're, no, I, I, don't know, I don't think you'd be alone, Rebecca Patrick, but there's a whole world of melons out there, uh, which we're going to learn about in a moment, so... Keep your eyes peeled. I was in a major supermarket yesterday and there's a bunch of different melons there in amongst the the, the traditional ones, but there's, there's a few different ones out there. Check them out.
8: Excellent. I will do that.
1: Have a good afternoon. That's uh, Rebecca Patrick at the Weather Bureau. The ABC text number these days does accept photographs. So I wonder if we've got someone listening this afternoon who can send us in a pic of that dust Slash ash slash sandstorm that's gone through Alice Springs today. I'd be interested to see it. So, text number it's the same, but you can send a picture. 487991057 seven double nine one zero five seven.
7: I'm Bluey. I'm out at Middle Point Farm. I'm an organic grower. We are growing tomatoes, carrots, melons, pumpkins, corn. And you are listening to The Country Hour.
1: Now, it's been a tough few months for so many Territory cattle stations who have been affected by bushfires. And as we've covered on this show before, there's not much direct financial assistance on the table from government at the moment except for that $5,000 freight subsidy. Uh, There are some other... Avenues, I guess, including rural business support. Now, it's been around since 2006, and its job is to provide free, confidential financial counselling, and it's all directed to primary producers in times of crisis. Its chief executive, Brett Smith, says, the earlier that you start up a conversation, the better.
7: You know, it's devastating for many, in particular, um, you know, the loss of feed, the disruption, uh, which is going to obviously cause uh, ongoing problems uh, moving forward. So, yeah, you know, I really, I just feel so much for those that have been impacted. Uh, so it's important to note that, you know, the fires are, are, are over the top of, you know, existing problems that have, have come from, other events um, and uh, and in some cases, you know, simultaneous um, events that are happening. And we know that, you know, we know that the drought wasn't too long ago. We know that, um, you know, the pandemic, which had, um, you know, knock on effects uh, wasn't uh, too long ago. And we know that there's also a livestock um, price downturn at the moment as well. So, and interest rates are, get, are going higher. So. You know, on top of and and the compounding effect um, is that on top of what's happening with the fires, um, this is placing extra pressure on on um, on our pastorals and and you know they really do need to think about uh, the business. Uh, they need to think about you know the financial position of the business, and that's again where our our business uh, financial counsellors can come in because we can actually sit down um, and as another set of eyes to other other services that they may have um, independently and in a free way, look at the business uh, and be able to, um, you know, make uh, or help uh, with the decision-making process uh, moving forward.
2: There's a lot of producers who were dealing with fires earlier and then there's some who are only just sort of entering the beginning of where fires are really going to be
0: starting to impact them. But why is it important to get
2: help early if you need it?
7: Um, look, why why to engage, engage early is, is so important um, because uh, what we tend to find in some cases, and this is where we can help in the early piece, is that many uh, will, produ- will experience um, situational distress. And situational distress is, you know, because of all the things that have happened. Um, it's often difficult to make decisions um, and, and it's so important um, you know, in the early days to make sure that communication with you know, banks and, and with the family and one's own wellbeing um, is being paid attention to. So reaching out early and having someone to talk to about those things. Can make a huge difference to the outcomes moving down the track. So that's just really the initial engagement process is really about um, getting getting um, individuals to think about um, their circumstances and and what they need to to start thinking about um, moving forward. And and we stress, you know, well-being is so important. Being being uh, you know being mentally fit um, in the early piece um, when. You know, rebuilding what has been, um, in, in a sense, destroyed, or making those decisions that need to be made, is so important. So, you know, sitting down with one of our councillors, they've experienced—they're very experienced. They've been dealing with many different situations and fires in other in other localities uh, over time. So, they know how to talk people through the 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 process to to really make the decisions that do need to be made and make sure that. Um, you know that that um, you know the individuals are again making those decisions that that need to be made for the business.
3: That's
1: Brett Smith, who's the chief executive of Rural Business Support, speaking to Victoria Ellis. So to receive that free confidential financial counselling, call 1800 236 211, or simply look up Rural Business Support online. <coughs>
0: Are you ready for the Biggest Little Bluey Countdown on Earth? All day on November 19, we're counting down your favourite 100 Bluey episodes of all time. Go to the ABC Kids website for downloadable decorations and invitations so you can invite your friends to your viewing party. Turn on the TV, Janet. The Biggest Little Bluey Countdown. Bluey best, Starts 6am on Sunday, November 19 on ABC Kids and streaming on ABC iView.
1: So, Emperor Gold, Orange Sugar, and Speckled Emperor Pearl. These are all varieties of melon. And up next, you'll meet the farmer who's growing them. Sugar
3: sugar.
1: It is 21 past one and you are tuned into the Country Hour. Japan can't get enough of Sean Jackson's melons. Sean Is a farmer in far north Queensland and over the last three years he's developed his own market into Japan for niche melon varieties. So he's growing varieties that you've probably never heard of like Emperor Gold, Orange Sugar and Speckled Emperor Pearl. A lot of these are going straight into supermarkets over in Japan and Sean says the feedback has been great.
2: It's going very well. The the volumes are not huge but I don't want them to be. We're developing the market through Mm flavour and we're not developing at the bottom end of the price so it takes rather slowly but we've got a good solid demand and the Japanese are asking for it and I'm trying to not grow as much because it's hard to grow. I'm trying to change varieties.
0: As I understand you're growing quite a few different varieties of melons. Can you kind of talk me through what those are?
2: Well I have a background in genetics so I have an understanding of the breeding process and where they're coming from and also my background is that I understand where they come from in the world so so the ones that have shelf life and the ones that have breeding that work are more likely to come from certain regions and others not so so I've been selecting those trialing them here and then picking out the ones that have shelf life sweetness and a capacity for for workers to assess maturity correctly.
0: And what what kind of melons are they?
2: Mostly in what people would refer to as honeydew types, but some of those honeydew types these days have white internal flesh and some have pink internal flesh and some have orange and some have green. So there's a great myriad of those things, but The the key with them all is flavour.
0: And we we tried a few before and they all do taste quite distinctively different from each other, which I was quite surprised about.
2: It's a little bit like wine tasting, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit of a surprise (laughs) you can make. I do it with people and each one has an interpretation of what they're actually tasting. But what you say is exactly right. I mean, what better thing to do than not tell the market what they should Mm. ask you for, but supply them something so they can make the choice between a range of flavours
0: why have you diversified into all these different you know melon types that are not your average watermelon?
2: We have a difficult situation in Australia where we have very high costs and and uh, we can get into very high risks of debt pre to starting and by changing varieties and growers often oversupply their own market by having my own varieties and keeping quality keeping a following then i could hopefully maintain a more flat price curve Mm -hmm. which is both reasonable for the public and that i know i can make a profit and succeed
0: what about overseas are many of these melons yeah being exported
2: Japan is, uh, I mean, we'd like to end up in all of the countries, but again, the Asians, there's a lot of money in Asia, and there's people with money who, who want good quality, and they have been buying off China and other places, and they're not particularly comfortable with that. And this farm uses bugs for bugs. We use probiotics. We use special things in the soil to keep it as natural as we can. And we use minimum chemical, and the Japanese respond really well to that. So at the moment, we're focused ourselves in Japan, top end domestic and then we're looking to expand further internationally korea vietnam etc
0: what percentage uh of your crop would you say does get exported at the moment 80 percent. what would it take for that crop to be brought into the australian market instead what would need to change
2: we've made them available to the australian marketplace and we're going to be doing taste testing in all the markets um the supermarkets aren't quick to take new varieties um i I think i if I can expand, this, there's, there's a market now that like to pay for quality and like to, equal. I'm not talking about paying a lot I'm talking about paying reasonable prices I'm have a. I'm very fair about my price, I, I have a big risk and I need a margin, I think um, we get it in people's faces and they try it and I get some backing from agents or stores to put it in and do in taste, and we'll go ahead and that'll expand in Australia but in, in the short term, I've already done that in Japan and, and, and people seem to grab it. I'd like to say that there's a perception in the industry and particularly in Australia when people wander around and they spend $6 on a cup of coffee and within an hour it's gone because it's a diuretic and yet they complain when honeydews are $6 to $8 on the market. They say they're expensive. It's crazy. I just wish people would understand the value. We hand plant, hand pick, select, spray millions of dollars at risk to give them an $8 melon which is $2 more than the coffee and it's worth it because you can put it in there, you can have it on salads, you can have it on fruit salads, you can eat it by itself, you can give it to your kids. It'll last you a week. Coffee lasts you an
1: hour. That is Sean Jackson, who's a melon grower from far north Queensland. He was speaking to Bridget Herman, and you can check out some pictures of these different melon varieties if you head along to the ABC Rural website. Sadly for the Northern Territory, exports of fresh fruit like melons, like pumpkins, like mangoes, I've hit a bit of a wall because of the runway works that are happening at the Darwin Airport. Those works I've got here are due to be completed in the next few weeks. But over this time it's been a little bit costly for industry. We might talk more about this in the coming days. The 2023
0: ODI World Cup finals. Hi, I'm David Warner. Join me for every
1: ball. I'm so, try
9: to it. Oh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> He's in it for sex. Every catch. Takes a brilliant catch diving away. And
1: every big hit. Double century
7: for Glenn Maxwell. Listen live on the ABC Listen app. Look for the World Cup button.
4: This
1: is a World Cup you won't want to miss. The ODI World Cup Finals.
3: That has literally hit the roof.
1: ABC Sport, your home of cricket. It is time now on the Country Hour to head to the Sail Yards. With all the latest prices out of Dublin here is John Trager.
9: Good afternoon. Numbers increased this week as agents offered 200 live weight and open oxen cattle and 50 open oxen calves. The usual buyers were in attendance and operating along with restockers in the market that remained generally firm for type and condition. Specialty butchers were also active on lighter and better conditioned young cattle. Vela steers sold from 192 to 214 cents, with Wheeler heifers selling from 155 to 182 cents. Healing steers sold from 146 to 202 cents, as yielding heifers range from 122 to 190 cents. Grown steers sold from 160 to 164 cents, with grown heifers selling from 138 to 160 cents. Light cows range from 62 to 130 cents. Medium cows sold from 140 to 160, with heavy cows selling from 130 to 170 cents. Bulls sold from 60 to 168 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger of the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour.
1: Thank you for that, John. In the live export trade, well, the quote I have is for feeder steers to Indonesia out of Darwin, $2.60 a kilo, feeder heifers, $2.30 a kilo. Problem is, there's no boats. There's not much going on at the moment in that trade. It's very, very quiet. MLA's brand new online young cattle indicator this afternoon is sitting at $2.64 a kilo live weight, which is up 31 cents on this time last week. Uh, That's all we've got time for on today's program. If you've missed any of it, you can always catch it via our podcast. Keep it rural.